And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Networks, it's In the Green Room. Green is in, but what does that really mean for you? Join the gang for a fun and energetic half-glass, half-full perspective to what and how sustainability is the lifestyle for the future. It can really affect everything you do, from your health, wallet, environment, money, even your morals. So our goal, to help save the planet one show at a time. Now, welcome to The Green Room. Welcome to In the Green Room. I'm Kinga. And I'm Chet. How's everybody doing tonight? Oh, we are having a great night. Greatest show on earth. And it's wonderful (laughs) to have Vince Tobin. 40-year career in football, four decades in football, former head coach of the Arizona Cardinals. Go Cardinals. 1996 to 2000. Go Vince Tobin. Well, uh, thank you. It's good to be here. I've not been in the green room before. We're so happy. (laughs) We we want you to be here a lot to talk about not only your football, but the love of your life. 43 years married, uh, and he proposed on their second date pretty incredible actually it was 42 i'm working on 43 Uh-oh. <laughs> coming up 43 is in progress yeah. in, in may correct in may okay yeah. may right. 13th we got married on friday the 13th which is oh. <laughs> good luck <laughs> i love it but your life started in missouri you were born in missouri missouri Miz- oh okay <laughs> thank you don't give me that canadian accent <laughs> Burlington Junction, seventh of seven kids. Seventh of seven kids. On a 120-acre farm. Uh, That's correct. We had what we called a subsistence farming. Uh, We raised a few cattle and a few pigs, uh, chickens. So we raised what we needed to eat, and uh, we made the money to do other things by selling yearling cattle every year. We'd raise out the cows that have a calf, and we'd feed them out. We were in 4-H at one time, which is feeding cattle out and then taking them to the show. Uh, and uh, we'd sell them, and that's where we had our money for the rest of the year. Well, Vince, that's quite sustainable. In our show, we really care about people getting back to being more sustainable and caring about our planet because we're here saving the planet one, one show, show at, at a time. time. I always said we were organic long before it was cool <laughs> to be organic. Everything was raised uh organically the manure that was put on the crops and rain and all that type of thing never had any other chemicals and your dad was a basketball captain prioritized sports for the kids and you traveled quite a ways for school to play sports well he wasn't a basketball captain Uh, he was a farmer but uh, uh, I went to high school in Maryville uh, and uh, we were actually from Burlington Junction and it's kind of a long story how that all happened but uh uh, anyway, uh, we played at high school in, in Maryville and then went on from there to the University of Missouri. And so how did you get excited about being this football coach? I mean, how did you get into football? Well, I played football in high school and, and uh, uh, went to Missouri and played football. Uh, you know, What, what I, position was your favorite? I, well, at that time, you played both ways. I was a defensive back and a running back. I was left-handed. So my claim to fame is I always I had a right half at nine sweep pass and I'd throw a pass left handed and everybody else didn't think that they could throw it left handed so it was usually open and I was three for three in college with two touchdowns. Nice, <laughs> aren't you a lefty? Yeah, well that's a great passer rating, man. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I'd have been above sixty, that's for sure. <laughs> 
And your brother, Bill, two years ahead of you, also a major career in professional football, helped you get a partial scholarship to the University of Missouri. And then when the coach, uh, Mark Devine, saw you play, um, granted you a full scholarship. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, Bill was uh, two years ahead of me. And, of course, Bill was probably always a better athlete in everything than, than I was. I was kind of the tag-along brother. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, he got a scholarship to Missouri was a sophomore down there and had played as a sophomore on the 1960 Orange Bowl team, actually, which uh, wow. uh, yeah. they were undefeated going in, and or, or they lost one game. They beat Navy with Joe Bellina in the Orange Bowl. But anyway, uh, he was a sophomore and I was a senior in high school, and I had been hurt my senior year and only played three games, so they didn't have much film of me of playing, and he won't always go over there and Say, how about giving a scholarship to my little brother? He's pretty good. So, so he, chi- he he's the one that vouched for you. He was, and uh, he was a major reason why I got to Missouri, I'm sure. And then once I got there, uh, as I said, I was on a partial scholarship. They gave me books and uh, tuition and fees. And uh, I joined a fraternity and worked as a, a waiter at their, their dinners so that I could get they pay for my board and, and uh, room and uh, that went on through the first semester and then uh, uh, we were at that time you could only play freshman ball freshmen weren't eligible to play with the varsity so we had two freshman games uh, one of them against KU uh, and they had a back by the name of Gail Sayers who was uh, uh, I found out later was really really highly recruited and all this type of thing anyway we played him uh, played them, and uh, when they hand him the ball, I would tackle him, and, and I never thought anything about it. And uh, after the game, Dan Devine came down and said, uh, you've got a full scholarship now. So for my sophomore, junior, senior, I had a full scholarship at Missouri. Nice. And Dan Devine had been at ASU, interestingly, and then went to Missouri as kind of as a promotion. Uh, well, that time ASU was kind of a – I don't know what you call it. the Arizona. Even in 1960, uh-huh. was a out there type of thing, and and uh, Missouri was in the Big Eight Conference, and uh, uh, so yeah, I would say it was a promotion. But anyway, Frank Kush was his defensive coordinator, and when Dan went to Missouri, boy, Frank became the head coach of Arizona State, and and of course he had a great career with uh, Arizona State, and was one of the more successful coaches in the history of football. Wow, that's exciting. We we actually at. My home studio. We did a show last week with uh, Danny Cush. So, are, are you are you friends with Danny Cush? Uh, not really. I mean, he's in another generation down. Uh, right. Uh, Frank was uh, a little bit older than I was, but I was more of a contemporary, probably of Frank's, than I was of his son. Well, what a legend! So then, I we we want to hear what. So your brother then got you that scholarship, and then what happened? Uh, well, I played football my sophomore and junior and senior year at, at Missouri. And uh, after, you know, getting a, a degree in, in physical education, I got my master's in guidance and counseling and uh, went to work for a, uh, the Neighborhood Youth Corps, which was part of uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, anti-poverty program. It was the first one he'd set up. And like a lot of government programs, it uh, had a great premise and worked well for a while, but the more money they poured into it, the more it became a 
kind of a bureaucratic mess uh, when it first started. My job was to go out to these uh, high schools and find young men that uh, didn't have a lot of money and uh, and women and provided them with jobs backed by the government mm. and uh, the people at the schools and other public places uh, provided what they called in-kind service. So they had to match the in-kind with the money that the, the government uh, put in for the kids' uh, scholarship. But it, anyway, it became so bureaucratic. The more money they put into it, the more people they hired. And pretty soon I was in, I was 21 years old. I was in this big office making uh, budgets and triplicate and sending them to Washington. And I said to myself, I don't think I want to do this. You didn't enjoy it. I don't want to do this. He thought it was boring. (laughs) Well, it was boring. It just wasn't me. I I grew up on a farm for crying out loud. I don't want to say So so anyway, I went over and talked to the coaches about seeing if they could get me a high school job because I I didn't want to, you know, do this anymore. And at that time, they were expanding their staff. And uh, they said, well, how about if you uh, hired on with us as a defensive end coach? And uh, I said, great. It was kind of ironic at that time. With the government thing, I was making – $8,000 $8,000 a year and they hired me for $500 a month. And I said, uh, well, that's quite a cut, you know, for, and this one coach who was my, really my coach in college at uh, Clay Cooper uh, said to me, he said, Vince, just take the job, please. And so that's what I did. <laughs> Didn't give me any experience. He said, just please take the job. You know? And, it was, and he, he was right, you know, because what in the heck was 200 or whatever. Two thousand dollars, I guess, was the difference uh, for getting then, into coaching. And, and you it, were coaching for five years at University of Missouri. I started in '67 and was there under Dan Devine, uh, coaching the defensive ends. In 1971, Dan went to uh, Notre Dame. It's either Notre Dame or Green Bay. Which one he went to first? But anyway, he left, and uh, Alan Afrio, who had been our defensive coordinator, became the head coach, and I stayed with him and uh, became the defensive coordinator at Missouri from uh, 71 through 76. So when you started coaching, do you feel, did you feel like this was my passion? This is why I, yeah, you know, I'm I on enjoyed this it yeah, very much so. Uh, you know, you'd grown up being a competitor your whole life, and, and competition is what you're used to, and uh, but what did you know about coaching? Yeah, <laughs> what's, anybody, and what's, what's anybody know about coaching for granted? <laughs> <laughs> Here's a football, you know, run with it. If you're on defense, tackle him. What the heck? That's so, pretty so, simple. So, so if Chet's played before and he watches, could he just go and try to get a job as a high school football coach? Well, and then- no, he played in college. So that obviously was one of the criteria that made him, you know, eligible for being a coach at that level i never played college football so i don't think but you played high school yeah well yeah. you could still get a job in the in the high school ranks you'd probably go in as an assistant or, or whatever but uh yeah that's not what i'm trying to do though well, so I, I understand yeah but what do you love about coaching vince um well i guess working with the with the players and and the competition uh uh the X's and O's of football, I was probably a lot better at that than I was really, a, they called, you know, a t- 
technique coaches. I, I wasn't a great technique coach. I thought that I could design defenses that gave us the best chance of stopping offenses, and, and so that's what I did for my whole career, really. And uh, we were very successful in most places that I was at. And you had some challenges with players, is that right? Oh, I don't. You know, <laughs> that's uh, players. Everybody's always asking me, uh, how do you coach a pro football player? And I said, well, you coach them just like you do a little league football player. They're all, they're all there to win, and they all want to do what they think can best help them win. And so if you come in with, a, with something that they think can help them win, then they're on your side. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they don't or, you know, they think you don't know what you're doing, well, they can run you out of the building pretty, pretty quick. Uh, when I went to the Bears in 86, uh, Buddy Ryan had been there, and the Bears had just won the Super Bowl in 85, and Buddy Ryan was really revered in, in Chicago as a, you know, the guru of all defenses. Well, when he left to go to Philadelphia uh, with the Eagles as a head coach, I came to uh, Chicago as a defensive coordinator under Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka, he's legendary. Uh, everybody coach. knows that legendary Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka was a wonderful guy. Tell uh, us about him. What uh, was it like working with him? Well, I guess there's several things. One is uh, when I got there as a defensive coordinator, they had just had all this great defense and all this type of thing. You'd have thought he would say, "Well, this is what you need to do. You got to follow Buddy's playbook and all this," and uh, he never did that. He said, Vince, this is your defense. You can do with it whatever you want. Uh, never once said to me anything about, you know, you should do this or should do that. Looked over my shoulder or anything. And uh, I always appreciated him for that because that's pretty hard to do after you'd been successful and won the Super Bowl and, you know, had a great defense before. But we had great defenses in Chicago uh, also. So the players must have been disappointed that now they're – yeah, tell us about the that Super first Bowl practice. Coach is gone. What well, was that like? <clears throat> well, uh, again, you don't get to be good players without being have strong personalities, and so these Bears players were very strong-willed and strong personalities, and and uh, they thought Buddy's way was the only way that they could, you know, that you could coach football or do football. Mm-hmm. And uh, was your approach much different? Uh, my approach wasn't any different than it's ever been. Uh, uh, you and you coach them. But anyway, uh, the first meeting we had, they're all in there, all slouched around. And this one guy, <laughs> he's got his feet up on my desk. And I said, what in the hell is going on here? Why is your feet up on my desk? And he said, well, right. so anyway, I said, get your feet off my desk. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I told him, I said, look, we can do this one of two ways. I said, you guys had a great defense last year with Buddy Ryan. This year we can have a great defense again. Uh, if we don't have a great defense, they won't have very far to uh, go to place the blame. It'll be on me. But uh, do you want to be known as the players that made the great defense or do you want to be known as the coach that had the great defense? And so uh, they bought in. Mike Singletary bought in. And, of course, he was a pretty good one to buy in on your side. And, uh, like I say, we won 14 games our first year and, Won a lot of them after that. And did you collaborate a lot with Mike Ditka? No. You didn't? Okay. 
he was on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, as I said before, he never, you know, uh, once ever, you know, said, why don't you blitz or why don't you run this or run that? Uh, he said, it's your defense and that's what, that's what you do. So actually, after, Oh, sorry. I was going to say, what was your coaching style? Were you like a really, really tough coach that would give out really, you know, rigorous punishments? Or were you more of a, like, did you like to communicate with the players? Because I know there's a pretty wide range with the way football coaches can interact with their players. Yeah, I, I never was a uh, mean, you know, coach uh, at all. I, I, I got what I wanted by letting them know that I knew what the hell I was doing. And if they followed what, what I told them to do, they could be successful. And as mm-hmm. I said before, they're no different than a little league football player. They want to be successful. Mm-hmm. They want, they want to win games and they want to go to championship games. And, uh, you do this by working together. Uh, you know, if, if somebody didn't practice or it was lazy, well, you played somebody else. But as mm-hmm. far as me going out and hollering and screaming and, all this type of thing, no, that never happened. But actually, after Missouri, you went to the Canadian Football League for five years, and that's interesting because that's where the I think the romance with your wife began. I did. I uh, I was at Missouri through 1976. Uh, a good friend of mine had been coaching at Missouri, and uh, had gone to Canada and became the head coach of the BC Lions. And he asked me if I would be interested in coming up there to be their defensive coordinator. Uh, well, I'd never seen a Canadian game in my life. and uh, But it was just time in my career. I'd been mm-hmm. in Missouri my whole life. I grew up there and coached there. Uh, so I said yes and went to uh, Canada and coached the BC Lions. And uh, uh, as some of you may know, the Canadian Football League rules are a lot different than the National Football League rules. And What are the differences? They have to say sorry after they make a tackle. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, the big thing is there's unlimited motion. And as a defensive coordinator, to be able to sort out unlimited un, uh, uh, motion where you, two or three guys can be going motion at the same time and who's got who and all this type of thing was quite a challenge. And, and uh, like I say, I'd never seen a game, never mind coached a game, so I had to do it all by watching film ahead of time, putting together my playbook of what I thought would work and what wouldn't work. And uh, so that's what I did. But, uh, yeah, they, they, the defenses, or the difference is they've got three downs to make 10 yards. The field is wider. You have to be a yard off the ball. So it's Is was, it a bigger ball, too? I don't think so. Doc said there's a bigger ball. I think it's a bigger ball, but you're the if football it, If it is, it's minuscule. It, it might be a little bit. It's not like you're throwing a pumpkin or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's not noticeable. It's, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like the same size, basically. And, but it's not significant to the yeah. game. But. Well, I moved to British Columbia in 1980, so when I became a BC Lions fan, you were on the sidelines in, I in Vancouver. So I was. I was That's in, amazing. In Kelowna, yeah. you know, with the Okanagan Sun was the local team, and they um, fed you some players over the years for sure. Uh, yeah, that, we really enjoyed uh, our time in Canada. Uh, Canada, uh, uh, Canadian football is different than U.S. football in that they have a board of directors. They don't have owners, at least in the Western Conference. The Eastern Conference had owners. The Western Conference all had a board of directors, mm-hmm. and most of those board of directors were pretty successful people in the town, or they wouldn't have become on the, got on the board. Uh, 
And so it seemed like after every game, you'd have a party at one of their houses, and they'd all try to outdo the other one as far as who had the best wow. party. So we had a lot of fun. Uh, Sounds so like I a have a question time. about this love affair. So, Chet, you haven't heard about this yet. Uh, Vince actually proposed to Kathy right here on their second date. So, so I'm going to pass my mic to Kathy so she can tell us how they met and how he was so romantic. Wow. Well. Excited to hear the story. <laughs> we met uh, a mutual friend introduced us. Uh, Vince came down. I was living at San Francisco at the time. I was a flight attendant for United Airlines. And uh, this mutual friend introduced us, and uh, we sort of hit it off right away, I guess you would say, since he proposed to me on the second date. (laughs) I said yes, and um, 42, almost 43 years later, we are still here, still together, still love each other very much, and... They had a very successful marriage. So were you surprised wow. when he proposed? I mean, were you expecting it? Uh, well, she left out the best part there of, of, uh, of how we really met. We were, this friend brought her out to uh, where my buddy and I were staying, and uh, they came in. Of course, here, Kathy and three guys. And uh, her friend says, uh, you know, she's available if, if anybody's interested. And so... From then on, why we tried to get her affections. Yes, uh, they were one on each side of me, and I'm, they're both just trying as hard as they can. <laughs> so both guys were competing for Kathy. Competing, and, and I am sitting there going, what is going on here? But, you know, I, I picked the right one. We'll put it that way. I picked the right one. <laughs> and you knew you were marrying a coach. Did, were, did, you, did you know what you were getting into, or was it a lot of surprises? Oh, I had absolutely no idea the amount of hours that these men put in on their job. Uh, Luckily, we got married before the season started, or there would have been no dating, let alone a marriage. So uh, they really put in an unbelievable amount of hours. But I have to say, at least my husband, when he was home, he was always there for me and the children but family was the most important thing to him, and that was very important to me, too. So I was very fortunate with the man that I ended up marrying, I have to say. Well, I was really impressed to hear Vince say last night that whenever you went to uh, do your contract, you'd say, I want my wife to be included on that flight with the football players, which was very nice of you. Uh, yeah, that's <clears throat> when I came to the Cardinals. You know, the Cardinals were a little bit different in those days. They didn't have many frills. Uh, and so I, I knew this. And so I, I told the, the owner, Mr. Bidwell, I said, you know, I'd like in my contract that Kathy goes on the plane with us to uh, all the away games. Uh, otherwise, she'd have never gone to any away games, I don't think. Well, that's really a, a nice, sweet husband to care about that. So how did you know on that second date that she was the one? Well... Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? The first date really was uh, uh, we went for a jog, as she would say. I, at that time, I was doing a lot of running and ended up running a marathon a couple of years after we got married. Hmm. But uh, anyway, we went for a jog, and she was always the you know, lead, and I was following. <laughs> and 
it seemed like she had a wiggle that she didn't normally have. And uh, so that got my attention. And then I come to find out later, I've never seen that same wiggle again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so cute. So you, you get married, uh, you proposed, now you're together. And how, how did you just like cleave together? I mean, you were kind of like strangers. Well, yes, we were, and I already told the story that uh, because I was a flight attendant, we our honeymoon was uh, Vienna, Austria, and um, we were flying in first class on Lufthansa, and I remember just looking over at him and going, oh, my goodness, I have married a complete stranger. <laughs> <laughs> but as you can see, it all worked out. I had a moment of panic, but it went away and everything worked out. Okay, so then I, I, I'm asking for a few tips for our listeners that are listening. You have a successful, loving marriage after the second uh, date proposal, and you've had a lifetime of love. What are some um, secret tips that you can give our listeners for making a marriage happy and working? You want to go first on that? Well, uh I say that this was, for me, this was extremely important. I had worked up until that point. I was 35 when we got married, and um, I had always gotten a paycheck. Well, he was in Vancouver, and I'm trying to fly out of San Francisco with United. It was very difficult. I Sometimes I didn't even make my flight on time trying to get there, so... We decided that it would be better, you know, if I just quit. But that was very hard for me to do. Um, I was used to, like I say, having a paycheck, being independent. And so one of the things that we decided was that even though I stayed at home and I took care of the family, he would pay me. And so I still got a paycheck every two weeks during our entire marriage until um, I collected Social Security. He gave me a paycheck. I love it. It's so smart. Because then you were never like going to him and asking for money. Can I get a dress? Can I get a... Because this was separate money. It wasn't just for the bills. It was like your separate play money. Oh, no. This was my mad money, I called it. I had my, <laughs> I had my own checking account, and I could do whatever I wanted with it. No, it was never for groceries or pay the bills. It was just money that I had that to... Get my hair done, you know, have a um, nail appointment or something like that. Close. Well, I think that's an amazing tip for those listeners out there that are thinking about getting married. You know, if, if the woman's going to stay home, it's one of the most important jobs. So, Vince, good job to you. And Kathy, amazing. Uh, what's a tip that you would give, Vince? Well, you, you asked me last night, and I didn't give you a very good answer, who is the boss in our family? <laughs> and the more I thought about it, we, we don't really have a boss in our family. Mm-hmm. Everything that we've done has been in collaboration. Uh, I've never done anything, whether it's change jobs or, or book a flight to go on a trip without going to her and seeing what her thoughts are and whether she wanted to do it and all this type of thing. Yeah. And so it's been a collaboration, you know, and uh, uh, so, so you both consult each other and n- neither one of you is really the boss. Well, I would still say that Vince, I would say Vince is the head of the family, but he treats me as an equal. I love it. That's, That's what's important. 
He treats me as an equal. And you had a lot of work to do, it sounds like, when you arrived in Phoenix and took the head coaching job with the Arizona Cardinals. They hadn't won a playoff game in 50 years. <laughs> well, they hadn't. Uh, I'm not sure they even had one winning season all the time they were with the Arizona in Phoenix. Because the Cardinals' histories, they started out in Chicago and then went to St. Louis and then went to Phoenix. And uh, when they got to Phoenix, well, they – didn't have a lot of success. Uh, we played in Sun Devil Stadium, uh, which was uh, everybody said, well, you know, why can't you play in Sun Devil Stadium? Arizona State plays in it. And I said, well, the only difference is we're playing at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. They're playing at 7 o'clock at night. It's, <laughs> it's quite a difference of heat. And so, uh, you know, it was it was hard on the field. And I also have always said it was hard in the stands. Uh those first few years, the Cardinal fans had to fight as hard as we did on the field because no matter who came to town, whether it was Dallas or Pittsburgh or Chicago or whatever, uh, a lot of those people were snowbirds that had come down and uh, lived in Phoenix or you know, were just here for the, uh, for the winter. And uh, so they fought hard, and uh, we fought hard, and uh, uh, got it turned around in 1988. 98, excuse me. Uh, we made the playoffs, went to Dallas, beat Dallas in Dallas, uh, which was the first playoff game that the Cardinals had won in 51 years. That's amazing. Wow. Incredible. Yay, coach. <laughs> Yay. We're so happy for you. And then the year after that, it must be frustrating. Now those players are higher value and, and a number of them go elsewhere for bigger paychecks. Is that right? It was. And in the in the Cardinals' defense, so there there wasn't a lot of money because there wasn't much revenue coming in, and mm -hmm. they're playing against team. And that time, they didn't have a salary cap or they didn't have anything. So mm -hmm. uh, the players were just then getting their feet of becoming free agents, and uh, a lot of our players opted to go free agent wise, and uh, they left for more money. Uh, and uh, Coaching is is wonderful and, and it helps you win ball games, but you still got to have the players on the field to to win the games. Uh, uh, it's still a players' league, and and I've always said job of a coach, or what I always thought a good defensive coordinator was, is to put your players in the best position to make a play uh, by design or by by a blitz or whatever. Whether they made it or not is up to how good a player they were, how good a player that the other guy was. But uh, at least they were in the position to make it, and usually they would make it because of being in the right position. One question I have is how did you deal with the like day-to-day -day stress of being a head coach? Because that's one of the highest uh, stress jobs that there is, really, I feel like, being a head coach because, you know, you don't have any job security for long term and, you know, a bad season can happen in a few weeks, a few losses in a row can, you know, uh, that season could be over. So how did you deal with those high levels of stress? Was it just always having a peaceful environment at home or what were your other secrets? Well, before we, Good question. Before we get into that, uh, when I first moved there to Phoenix, we bought a house in Paradise Valley. And of course, Paradise Valley Country Club was, right down the, the hill from where our place was, and they had a long waiting list to get in. 
and I and the waiting list was five years. So I put my name on the list to to get in, and I always said that's the height of optimism for a football coach to get on a waiting list to get in a country club that takes five years to get because most coaches <laughs> last two or three. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, might as well not even apply. But anyway, the stress. I, I don't know. I, I I don't get very stressed. I guess would be a, a good way to put it. I, I I've always believed that the, God has a plan for your life, and, and uh, He's got a plan for mine. He's got a plan for Kathy's, and and uh, no matter what happens, uh, it'll be okay. Uh, so, would you say prayer is one of those? Oh well, sure. That's part of uh, uh, you know being a born again Christian. Uh, you know and. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs. There's no question about that. The downs, you've got to get yourself back up, and the, the ups, where you, you try to maintain an even keel. Uh, but uh, well, didn't you? You said that you were also a runner. Did you run while you were the coach as I, well? I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Matter of fact, uh, that's where. No, we rode. I ran my marathon in uh, British Columbia. Uh, where? When did you find the time to do all that running? If you're coaching. Well, when I was in in Canada, <laughs> I ran home, and we were about five or six miles away. I'd, I'd, I'd run to work in the morning, and I'd run home at night. And uh, wow, that's dedication! Did you just hear that? That's, awesome. that's a good way to get the miles in. Quick. Well, that, that's, that's the only incredible. way, and, and you didn't have time. You know, I couldn't go in the middle of the day wow. and run for for an hour, hour and a half. But uh, uh, wow, you ran five miles to work and five miles home. That's incredible. Yeah, that's almost like walking up and up the hill to school when you're a kid, right? <laughs> that really <laughs> Both is. ways. <laughs> that's impressive. And did you ever drink wine? Is a head coach allowed to drink wine? <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I, I never ask anybody whether it's all right. <laughs> I've had a couple of beers and wines in my day, yes. Well, we I, we always tell this story about who wanted to know about Mike Ditka. Well, uh, we were in Sweden playing one of those um, games that we played on, you know, in other countries. And Mike would was sitting one time when we came in from we had dinner somewhere, and he was in the bar. And when we walked by, he said, you know, waved it. And anybody who walked by, it didn't matter whether they were part of the team or not, he invited them in. And Mike drank only Dom Perignon champagne. And so <laughs> the highest bar bill that they had ever, ever had in this bar was $7,500 that Mike Dicka paid. This was back in the 80s, so you can wow. about imagine what that would be with today. So, yes, coaches drink wine and champagne <laughs> you play hard and you uh, or you work hard and you play hard when your opportunity presents itself play That's hard work hard i like success. that yeah so, so you always had a great time hanging out with mike dicka oh absolutely the man had the best sense of humor of anybody i was ever around he always had us laughing he was he was a great person to be around and know i always said mike was a uh, like an atm machine Money poured in the top, and it poured out the bottom. He he was he, <laughs> he he could make money. He had a lot of things going in Chicago. You know, he had his helicopter thing, the limo business, and uh, steakhouses and all that. So he made a lot of money, but he spent a lot of money. A splurger. Well, you know, he just and took care of the people. Mm -hmm. So so he said that they were. He was always so generous. He he treated everybody in the bar. 
It's After just really hearing nice. that story, it sounds like it. Yeah. And, you know, he took very good care of the staff also. He's probably the best head coach we had as far as taking care of the staff. Okay, so I want to ask you, I know this is kind of like, uh, you know, a topic that some people don't like to talk about, but the injuries, head injuries. Uh, you're a coach. You love football. I know you still love to watch football. Uh, how dangerous do you think football is? Well, football has always been a contact sport. I mean, you know, the uh, dancing is a, you know, a different type of sport and uh, swimming and all this type of thing. But football is a contact sport, always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, injuries probably have changed over the years. As I was saying earlier, uh, originally, well, one time they didn't even have helmets, but then they had leather helmets. So people didn't lead with their helmet or their head. They put it aside, found a way to tackle a guy by wrapping him up, hitting their shoulder, and and keeping their head out of the out of the contact. Mm-hmm. And uh, the better the helmet became, the more people started using the helmet as a battering ram or just to knock them over or make them try to fumble and this type of thing. That comparison is really accurate because rugby players don't wear helmets really, and they don't have as much mm-hmm. concussion and head trauma. So. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, it had it okay. hadn't been it hadn't been studied anyway, like football. Yeah, yeah, true. I, I always say that if you ever watch MMA wrestling or boxing or whatever it is, those guys kick each other in the head, yeah, elbow them in the head, <laughs> yeah. get them down and just pummel them mm-hmm. in the head, and nobody has ever, to my knowledge, has ever said anything about a head injury in in that sport. Uh, so it's well, it's been really focused on in football, and it is a problem, and they're trying to uh, alleviate it the best they can by rule changes that defensive coaches don't like. Like what? What, what would be some good rule changes? Well, they have the concussion protocol now, so if there's any symptoms of a concussion, the players have to sit out for, like, I think a minimum of five or six days, and then they have to get, like, new uh, cognitive tests to make sure that they still have no concussion symptoms before they're cleared to play stuff like that. So they've implemented some good, you know, precautionary rules for the player safety, but, um, plus I, the way play, plus the way you can tackle. They won't let you use your helmet, uh, to initiate contact, uh, for a quarterback, you can't hit him high and you can't hit him low. So, you know, you got a very, you get a small quarterback. You got a very, Small radius <laughs> to, yeah, try to, to try to tackle him, especially he crunches down. But, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was been a problem. And, uh, you know, like I say, it's a, whether it's a dangerous sport, I, I don't think it is any more so than, uh, well. Well, every sport you have a risk of injury. Exactly. Yeah. That's I guess that's a just different one. Yeah, exactly. And and keeping your kids, you know, a kid that does want to play football like Owen, you know, it's you know, it's it's better to keep them busy, you know, and keep them out of trouble. And also, if it makes them happy, you know, yeah, you got to do what you love. That's right. Yep. So, Doc, what do you think, being a doctor, how of the risks of football? Yeah, I think it's you know, it's um, it's a trade off. Mm-hmm. The players have gotten bigger and stronger. Would you mm-hmm. see over your career, Vince? How oh. much how much bigger are the players? Well, when I was in Chicago. We had a guy by the name of William Refrigerator, Refrigerator Perry. Perry, and they thought he was the biggest thing that ever come down. The height of his weight was 306. He usually played, when he really played good, about 295. Now these players, they're 330, 340, 350, and nobody mm-hmm. says anything about it. You know, So uh, that's just in 20 years. How, right. are they, how are they getting that big? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's basically some a good lot, protein uh, powders. A, a lot of it. A lot of it's food, nutrition. A lot yeah. of it is uh, uh, their weight program, their weight training. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was at Missouri, we never had weights until my junior year, and then we had something came in they called isometrics, where you'd lift against the bar and, and uh, uh, you know, that's supposed to make your, your muscles stronger. Well, we found out it was stretching the ligaments in the knees and the elbows and stuff like that, so we got rid of that pretty quick. But now, I mean, the off-season program, they've got these two or three weight coaches, and they're lifting, you know, a lot of weight and uh, getting stronger. So the players have gotten bigger, they're hitting harder, but they're still made out of the same tissues that they were back in the day. The helmets have gotten better. They're tackling maybe smarter. So it's going to be a trade-off between bigger yeah. players hitting harder, but with slightly better equipment. We'll just I think we have to just see where the head thing pans yeah. out. Well, yeah. and you talk about, you know, whether a kid wants to play Football is a, is a special sport, and you know if you have a love for it, there's no other sport like it. Baseball is not like it. Basketball is not like. It. I played all of them, uh, but football was special, and uh, I think a lot of kids feel that way. Yeah, I think it was a kind of a wise comparison to like martial arts and UFC and that stuff because it has a uh, physical trade off. If you play poorly, you're gonna you know, hurt a little bit the next day. But I think that's also one of the things about football that, you know, makes it so enjoyable. You know, I remember back when I used to play, like having a good tackle, that was a great feeling. You know, it wasn't, you know, ow, I'm hurting afterwards or something like that. It was a great play, a good feeling of accomplishment. So, yeah, a tackle used to be a tackle where you'd hit them with your shoulder, wrap them up with your arms and take them down. Now it's, uh, more run into them and try to knock them over. Uh, rarely do you ever see anybody wrap up a, unless it's you know a wide receiver or something like that. They'll mm-hmm. try to grab him by the legs. But uh, tackling is kind of a lost art. Mm-hmm. Well, I think some of the new rules or the concussion safety rules, mm-hmm. like out or banning targeting and stuff like that, probably going to force some players to refine their tackling skills and make them come back a little bit. Uh, it does. It's just a that is you know a slippery slope as far as who's who initiates the targeting and who and all that type of thing. And they're they're one air on safety, which I can understand. But uh, a lot of times they'll kick a guy out of a ball game for leading with, and he, he didn't do anything until the runner got to him and lowered his head and hit him in the helmet, and then they throw their defensive guy out. Of course, I'm a little prejudiced on defense. <laughs> I agree with you. I think they are getting a little too soft with some of those rules. Who is your pick in the Super Bowl? You thinking Buccaneers or Chiefs? Well, I'm from Missouri, and uh, I'd have to take the Chiefs. Okay, well, they're looking pretty good. Okay, I I would love to bet with you. <laughs> I'm for Buccaneers. Well, L- let's talk about it at dinner tonight because... Well, bring your money. Okay. <laughs> what are we betting? <laughs> My wife's here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if Tom Brady gets that win in that seventh ring, I think he's going to be the undisputed greatest of all time. 
Oh, that'd be hard to argue, I guess. Uh, yeah, do you it, have to say to he's do it in your first year with a new team—that's insane. Yeah. So to even get there, I'm impressed. I'm not even a big Tom Brady fan, but I'm a huge what he's Tom done Brady this fan. year is impressive. So. And Chet, did you know he's vegan? I I didn't really care about his diet. I just care about his, <laughs> how well he throws a football. <laughs> but, uh, but but what about extremes in temperature? I mean, it seems to me that some players may some teams may come to Arizona when it's hot and they might just wilt, and so you can run all over them. And then I also wonder what it's like to play in those ex, you know in snow and when it's sub zero and freezing. And that's a good question. And with that question, uh, something uh, Steve uh, Chet's dad asked is. Is it harder, in your opinion, for a player that lives in the cold weather to come and play here in 120-degree weather, or is it harder for uh, somebody that lives in the desert in 120 degrees to go to play in the cold, the freezing cold? Wh- which way do you think is Going more difficult? Going and playing in Green Bay or something. Mm-hmm. Well, What do you think is more difficult? I, I think the cold weather when coming down to the, to the desert to play is more because you, you get dehydrated. Mm-hmm. And they're not used to uh, uh, taking in the waters and all that. And of course, they have all these trainers now that do such a great job of electrolytes and all this stuff uh, that makes it better. But you know, at one time you'd come down there and you know that uh, you know they'd be sweating so much r- liquid that they'd cramp up and and uh, and this type of thing. Going up to the cold it, to me is just kind of a mindset. You know, you got to. You know, you either think it's cold or you don't think it's cold. And, of course, I've coached in both of them about as high a degrees as you can be. We were in Chicago. We had a lot, a lot of cold weather games, and Green Bay had a lot of cold weather. And the wind, the wind mixed with the cold, that's really difficult. It does. Mm-hmm. Did you see that working to your advantage where the other team was just wilting? <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether that's true or not. That's, that's kind of announcer talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you've got something that's working, you continue to use it. If that if that's answers your question, uh, whether they're wilting or they're not wilting, you, maybe your guy your guy's a better blocker than their guy, and this type of thing. But uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, whatever successful you try to use. Right. How about how about the wife perspective on the game experience, Kathy? You sat through a lot of games. You had a lot of interactions with fans. You know it's your husband out there, and you see the fans being supportive or abusive, and how do you react? Well, as a wife, uh, it, the hardest part, I think, is, is if you hear some a fan say something negative about your husband and not reacting. Because, believe me, I reacted one time uh, when uh, in Chicago when a sports writer wrote something that I thought was just so wrong. And I called up the station, and I talked to him. And when I told Vince, he said, you should have never done that because he's going to be on me all the time now. And that was true. Uh, It's better just to sit and don't say anything. Trust right, me. that's hard to do, but that, that broke down in uh, Dallas. But I think that's really cute that you did that. I think that's really sweet. Yeah, but that uh, it, it, it's really it, it's very hard. Uh, they generally put the wives all together in one section. Um, I was never in a suite like some of the head coaches' wives were. We were always out in the stadium with the fans, which I enjoyed being out there. However, uh, we're. 
we all sat together, and so uh, frequently the fans knew who the wives were. And I remember a particular instance when we were actually in Indianapolis with the Colts, and uh, we were sort of up toward the top where the food was, and um, we were losing the game, and so those fans got behind us, and they bought hot dogs, and they filled them with mustard, and just started throwing in them at us, just throwing at us. And so we ended up with, you know, being smeared with mustard and things like that. Oh, fans are very rabid, and they can they can really react in strange ways. Um, that was one situation, and 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 we couldn't react. We couldn't. I mean, we couldn't get up and start screaming at them. That would have accomplished nothing. So, you do you did learn just to sit. And quietly take whatever they, and you know, you can understand the fans. They love the game. They love their teams. They want their teams to win. And when they don't win, it's hard on the fans too. So, but sometimes they got a little extreme, which wasn't necessary in my opinion. So what did Vince think about you being uh, clobbered with hot dogs? (laughs) I didn't like it. So, Chet, you missed it. Uh, All I came back to was clobbered with hot dogs <laughs> so the co- with no contacts. So. so they were at uh, a game, and all the coaches' wives were the target of the fans. And they, they uh, took a bunch of ketchup and hot dogs and threw it at all, all the coaches' oh, wives. No. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, there were... Where was that? In Philadelphia? Well, it certainly could have been in Philadelphia, but they, no, actually, it was in Indianapolis with the Colts, which was would have been sort of a surprising thing. Uh, I one situation that really, really bothered me. We went into when we were at the Colts, we made it all the way to the championship game. We were in Pittsburgh with the Steelers. The Steelers won the game. This was in January. And when the team bu- our team bus was leaving the stadium, after the Pittsburgh had already won the game, the fans took rocks and put them inside of snowballs and threw these rock snowballs, just pelted our bus with them. I mean, apparently the bus had good windows. They didn't break, but I thought, what kind of sportsmanship is that? None. When you've just won the game... And you're going to pout the opposing team's bus with snowballs with rocks in them? I mean, that's really poor sportsmanship. Sorry. But it's interesting. You said a Dallas fan in Dallas is far more polite than a Dallas fan in Phoenix. I think so, yes. I mean, when we went to Dallas and we won the um, the game, the Dallas fans came up to us and said, okay, now we're behind you. Go on to the next game and please win it. And also, I was, I, I would travel with the team, as they said, and so frequently, uh, sometimes they put me up in a suite, but other times they just put me in the stadium. And so, I was in the Dallas stadium, and I was in the middle of all Dallas fans. I was very quiet. I didn't say anything, but I also had um, a, a gentleman that took me to my seats and took me, you know, took me down to where the team was after the games were over. 
So there was two minutes left in the game, and he came down, was right in the middle. He came down the steps, and he started going, you know, signaling for me to come because it was time to go down. And um, all the Dallas fans sitting around me said, why are you kicking her out? She hasn't done anything (laughs) wrong. And they were just so supportive of me, and I I thought that was so nice. Like so we only have a few minutes. Game. Let her stay. We only have a few minutes left. Uh, three minutes left. So I want to ask Coach Vince Tobin here. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? What like three to five things do you want to be remembered for? Most important in your life. Uh, <clears throat> well, I guess marrying my wife, having two children. Uh, my time with uh, Cardinals, we had some great wins. We had some great wins in uh, in Chicago. I was at, at, in the Fog Bowl in 1986 when Philadelphia came back again. The same buddy Ryan that had left, he was now the head coach of the of the Eagles, and it was a Fog Bowl. You couldn't even see him on the other side of the of the field, and uh, we ended up beating him. Uh, I'd say beating Dallas in Dallas. First playoff win in 51 years would uh, qualify. Uh, I had some great victories in in college. We beat uh, Alabama in in the uh, Gator Bowl in 1968 when Bear wow. Bryant was uh, running the organization. And uh, of course, we, you know we've had a lot of wins. Like Kathy said, in the Indianapolis, we were the uh, uh, wild card team and we won all of our games all the way to the Pittsburgh game and we've had to play them all on the road kind of like Tampa did this year and uh, uh, really had Pittsburgh beat we should have beaten them we had them beat and we had a couple calls go against us that were wrong but uh, anyway uh, that was a good run Uh, working your way up to where to be the head coach of the NFL that's I would say that's living the American dream it is. You know, one thing you were talking about at the farm, uh, as I said before, we had 120 acres and seven kids, and the last three were boys. And uh, the folks put everyone, all seven of them, through college. Uh, the last three were my brother Al, who uh, ended up going in as an enlisted man, came out as a general in the Army. Uh, my brother Bill... Ended up as a general manager for two different teams in the NFL. And I, of course, had the opportunity to be a head coach in the NFL. So that's uh, for a small family from Missouri, 120 acres. That's not bad. Living the American dream. Correct. And I know I don't like to talk about death, but I know you. it was really important to you to have your headstone picked out <laughs> for your future, <laughs> for you and your wife. And what what is your headstone, headstone going to say? Uh, well, Already it says. It, it already is up. But anyway. It, what does it, it say? It says uh, uh, Vince Tobin, Kathy Tobin, where we were. It said the coach from Missouri married the stewardess from uh, Montana. Montana. And here's their life's journey. And it has all the teams that we were went to, we were together in the years that we were there. And then it said at the bottom that uh, they have two beautiful children. Well, the fans thank you and the players thank, thank you. Thank you so much. We We really, really, really... Uh, are so grateful and blessed to have you here at this In the Green Room show. Uh, Thank you so much, and thank God. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thanks for joining in the green room. It was a great time. Awesome. Thank you for listening to In the Green Room. Join us here live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. or anytime on demand 24-7 on StarWorldWideNetworks.com.